say c'est bon. Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. For the next half hour, I'll be presenting to you news, happenings, and personalities from Paris's extraordinary culinary world. So sit back and get ready to enjoy a full half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Like those French people do. Because it's all so good. For many people passionate about wine, Burgundy remains the Eldorado of fine wines. And I don't mean just French wines, but all wines. So, when I was invited last month, along with 2,500 other participants from 21 countries, to be a part of the Grand Jour de Bourgogne, held every two years, I literally jumped at the chance. Not often do we get the opportunity to taste hundreds of wines, all in beautiful terroir-centric settings from esteemed appellations such as Volnay, Pomard, Corton Charlemagne, Pouligny Montrachet, Chablis, Beaujolais, Clos-Vougeau, Echezeau, and Nuit Saint-Georges. Four days of non-stop wine tasting was enough to fall in love not just with the wines, but with the Burgundy region itself. So, who better to sit down and talk Burgundy with than the new owner of Chateau du Pomard? His name is Michael Baum, and he hails from Silicon Valley. This startup specialist fell in love with Burgundy, too, so much so that he bought the emblematic chateau of the legendary Pomard Climat, the term the Burgundians use for appellation. Here, you get to listen in on my conversations with Michael Baum, his winemaker, Emmanuel Sala, and his chief commercial officer, Anne Feely. To round out our show this month, episode 16 of Paris Good Food and Wine, I was able to catch up with Wine Spectator's senior editor, James Molesworth, as he dashed from Bordeaux back to New York City. He was barrel-tasting his way through Bordeaux's 2015 En Primeur, and he has some exciting news to share with us about both the 2015 Bordeaux vintage and also the friendly, vibrant city itself. So, sit back and relax as we take you through a spectacular wine tourism show featuring France's two most famous wine regions, Burgundy and Bordeaux. On écrit sur les murs le nom de ceux qu'on aime, des messages pour les jours à venir. On écrit sur les murs à l'encre de nos veines, on dessine tout ce que l'on voudrait dire. Michael Baum, you are the fairly new owner at this magnificent Chateau de Pomard. 
how are you going to use through through your chateau here how are you going to be able to share the beauty of burgundy with the world that is really the question of how to take the magic of this region that um, historically has been very closed uh, to the rest of the world and export the beauty of this place to, uh, to the world. The wine, the cuisine, the, the wonderful authenticity of the people here. Um, as, as you know, you're here at the Chateau, it's as if you've stepped back 300 years in time. Um, the, the whole region is just amazing the way it's, it's stood still. And there's so much beauty in that, that we want to find ways to open it up for the rest of the world to experience that. It appears on the, on the visit now that you've, you and your team have indulged me in this morning, it appears that you're, going, you're doing that through a lot of outreach of hospitality and making people welcome you know, to come and taste your wines and, and actually look, you know, tour the, walk around the vineyards. We are, and we, we think it all starts with the customer and it all starts with hospitality. And the, the, the French are historically, you know, through, throughout the centuries, so good at this. And we really want to bring the best of France and hospitality to Burgundy. We welcome today as one of the only um, uh, chateaus that's open to the public in Burgundy, uh, over 30,000 visitors a, a year. And we really try to give each one of them a special experience to indulge them in the 300 years of history of the chateau here, uh, the families that have been here. Um, you know, the history of the chateau really parallels the history of France and the history of the world. So it's so, so interesting for, for people to come and learn about that. And there's so many layers to it that every time you come back here, and, and you visit the Chateau Mico, and then maybe you come see the Chateau Marimange, you learn more and more about these families and uh, what they went through. I mean, the, um, you know, the good times, the bad times, uh, the wealth they had, but the struggles they went to, the French Revolution, how it impacted this place, divided the property, which eventually came back together. The, the stories are endless. And it's, um, it's really exciting to be a part of that and to share that with the visitors that come here. The most special part, though, of course, is the Clos de Chateau de Pomar, which is the, the, the largest single monopole, meaning uh, vineyard uh, under single ownership in all of Burgundy. It's 20 hectares, and that's about 64 acres. And what's unique about that is we have the opportunity to produce an exceptional Grand Vin here because in the clos, in the vineyard, uh, and a clos is a vineyard that's in, inside of a single wall, um, we have five distinct terroirs or areas of soil, different densities of clay, different depths of limestone, and through the blending of the grapes across those five terroirs, we end up with a Grand Vin that is not just powerful as Pomar is. Pomar is the, the most uh, powerful wine in Burgundy, uh, the red wine. But 
also very long and elegant and complex with many layers because we're blending five different terroirs into this single ground vine. And that really is, is exceptional. The only other place you see this happening is really in Bordeaux, where you have very, very large grand estates. So it's, it's a, um, a really rich experience in winemaking for people to come and learn how we do that here. And, and to be part of it. We run blending workshops uh, throughout the year where people can blend their own Grand Vine. Uh, it's such a great way to indulge in learning about not just the history of the property, but how wine is made. It does seem like you're, you've put into place a, a number of, of welcoming outreach. Um, you just mentioned a wine class. Uh, people can participate in uh, learning how to like t- you taste your wines, and um, I think up- upcoming on your calendar is a is a wine and chocolate pairing. We we get many many visitors from Paris, and um, this weekend uh, for Easter for the Pac, we have uh, wine and chocolate pairing. We have a very special uh, relationship with a company from Brussels called Nutri. And they make exceptional chocolates with all kinds of ingredients like lavender and thyme and chili pepper uh, and ginger. And we pair those with different wines throughout the region. Although we are in Poma, we make 27 different wines across Burgundy. So we have a chance to pair these chocolates um, with all kinds of different wines from the region. And we really believe that wine and cuisine are one. And one and one makes three when they're enjoyed together. They are both just more exceptional and more enjoyable. Thank you very much, Michael, for those wonderful words of wisdom. And thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. You can find photos and links related to these stories on our website, Local Food and Wine. Next up, we'll be hearing from Emmanuel Sala, a self-described shaman, and the Chateau du Pomard winemaker, who listens closely in order to hear what his vines and his terroir require from him. Emmanuel Sala is the winemaker and, and vineyard manager at Chateau du Pomard in Burgundy. And the, sim- the simple question to you is, how do you approach each new vintage as someone who's going to reveal the reveal the wines. Of course, if you work in the vineyard during one year, you could understand the vintage before starting the vendange. You think you understood, but in fact, in fact, you're never sure. So, for me, the best way is to wait that the wine start to to find a way. The the wine find the way. You don't have to put the wine in a direction. Today there is a, a lot of very technological wine. Uh, we are not making, in, this, in, in school, we are not making winemaker. We are making uh, engineer, analogist. And for me there is a big, big difference between an analogist and a winemaker. Perhaps a winemaker has to be an analogist sometimes. But the the analogy starts when you fall the winemaking for me. All uh, must be natural. In fact, what a, a great wine. Which difference between a great wine and a good wine? The good wine 
can be built everywhere with a good yeast, with a good technology. You can today make a good wine everywhere. The great wine uh, have to come a good terroir, a very specific terroir, and the difference is the balance, the natural balance. Even if on the analyze, the acidity is less, the pH too white, the level of sugar not very good, you can have something exceptional. And if you compare with the technologic wine, all is perfect on the analyze, but when you test, something is less. Yeah, you're speaking like a true artist and a true Burgundian artist too. Do you, when you, so when, after the harvest and you start to understand the grapes that you have for that year, do you set a vision as to what kind of wine you're going to make or do you allow the, the grapes to tell you? The, the, the grapes must tell me. Uh, I never know exactly what will happen. Sometimes I sit on my winery <laughs> and uh, wait. I don't know exactly what I wait. I'm waiting, but uh, I need to understand. So uh, the concept is uh, not have a final uh, picture of the wine in my mind. Wait, waiting that the wine keep his way slowly and uh, just. Uh, my job, in fact, is just to maintain the wine in the way he had choice. That's wonderful. Yeah, you're like um, a loving parent in a way. It sounds like you're sort of like a loving parent with your with your children who are, are the new wines. I can. Of course, yes, it's my children, but uh, uh, it's not easy to to, to explain. Well, you know, actually, I wanted to I wanted to shift for one moment. Um, you have some wonderful plots here on the biggest privately owned monopole in in Burgundy. Tell me about a couple of your older plots. I think you have some hundred year old vines. Yes, it's uh, uh, yes, it's one uh, one century uh, old. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, of course, the production is very low perhaps less than uh, 15 hectoliters by hectares a year. But I really need this, this plot. It, it, it's funny. Uh, I've got two plots with two different uh, vines inside. In fact, the oldest plot is Chantrerie Vieille, old Chantrerie, the old lady. Uh, she was planted uh, 100 years now. And uh, we have uh, just near a new plant on Chantrerie 2, it's Chantrerie Young. It was planted in 2001. And the other old vineyard is uh, L'Epaule. One part was planted in uh, 1943, and the other part was planted in 2001, like Chantrerie Jeanne. And if you compare, each plot, because all plots are, um, are uh, picking and uh, vinificated apart, alone, and aging. And during aging, you can test in a barrel of Chantrerie Jeune, Paul Jeune, Chantrerie Vieille, and Paul Vieille, and compare. And it's crazy, because in Paul Jeune and Paul Vieille, you can recognize the terroir, 
But of course, Bolvier is more profound, more complex. And in Chantrerie, uh, if you test Paul Jeune on Chantrerie Jeune, there is a big, big difference of quality. Of course, Chantrerie is perhaps one of the best parcels in Burgundy. And uh, Chantrerie Jeune is already a great wine. And the old lady of one year old, it's amazing. But not so good like Simon. Simon is uh, only uh, 35 years old, but it's a, a crazy terroir, a crazy soil uh, with a, a very, very complex and high quality of clay. Perhaps one of the more complex quality in the world. That's remarkable, and I know, I know as someone who knows his soils very well, you're going to want to explain to me all the, the, the technicals about the clay, and, but I think you'll, it'll, it'll get a little too technical for us at that point, but I, I want to say, I mean, it's the best way to actually try to understand this is for people to come and walk around your property and see that for themselves. Yes, they have to come. <laughs> Welcome to them. <laughs> Thank you very much, Emmanuel Sala. Thank you so much for, for speaking to us today. I, I try to speak. <laughs> to round out our Chateau de Pomard trilogy, we hear a few words from Anne Feely and how you can get hold of some of these fabulous wines, especially their 2012 vintage. Anne Feely, it's exciting to hear about some of the strategies that you're implementing to make these wines accessible, even to people in the United States, although it's very important to come and visit the Chateau as well. But when we're back in the States, how are ways we can get hold of your wines? Well, thank you for asking that. What we're looking at right now is the option to self-import into the United States and then sell directly to the consumer because we want to bring a little bit of what we have here back to the United States. The important thing about having visitors here is that they feel welcomed as a guest. It's about hospitality and welcoming them into our home of the chateau. Well, for the United States, we'd like to have that same experience, but because of technology, it can be more of a virtual experience. So we have a new website that will launch, hopefully, in the next three months, and then we'll, by then, be able to have the experience where they can do a virtual tour of the vineyards. They can sit down with Emmanuel and taste a wine together. They can interact with Michael and listen to Michael and his reasons why he wanted to buy this incredibly beautiful chateau. Um, and then they can taste the wines. There'll be tasting notes. There'll be um, video chats about the various wines as they launch. But the important thing is to get to know that consumer better, we'd like to sell directly to them in the U.S. so that they have wine shipped to them from us, so that they know that it comes from the chateau because the provenance of Burgundy is so important in the U.S. market. Yeah, that raises a great point because sometimes in the U.S., uh, when we go for a, a Burgundy wine, um, either the price point is sort of you know way out of a personal budget, or the selection is limited. And also, too, the point was raised about transport. Sometimes we don't know exactly how the wines are transported. So those would all play into the advantage of buying direct from your chateau. Can you speak to any of the vintages? I uh, was there. Yes. One nice thing about buying, Michael's buying the Chateau is that we have a cellar with some incredibly aged wines. Our top wine is the Grand Vin de Chateau de Pomard, 
And that wine, we have several vintages, which makes it an exceptional opportunity. We go back to 2008, where we just got a fantastic review in the French press for a consumer or a sommelier in the United States to have a 2008 Burgundy on their wine list that is so open and elegant and layered with flavor. To enjoy that right now and not have to cellar it for 10 years for that to happen, we've done that for you. And we've got 2010 and we've got 2012 and 14 coming after that just to be able to actually have your own little mini vertical at home. We want to make that opportunity for people that it's, it's a pleasurable thing you can do with friends. Share the hospitality of Chateau de Beaumont that we are sharing here. Share it at home with your friends. Do a, a vertical, as we call, degustation, uh, a tasting, and uh, get to know more about the wine and the place. And then eventually, please come visit us because we want to welcome you here personally. I can't add anything to that that will top that. So I'll let, thank you very much, Anne. On écrit sur les murs le nom de ceux qu'on aime, des messages pour les jours à venir. On écrit sur les murs à l'encre de nos veines, on dessine tout ce que l'on voudrait dire. Now, for our featured wine expert, James Molesworth, senior editor of Wine Spectator just back from his 12-day tasting trip for Bordeaux en Primeur, their 2015 vintage. James Molesworth, you are, I have to say, you are kind of, um, I, I, I'd like to say hero, but I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to sound facetious, but, but seriously, just, you're coming off of 12 days of en Primeur in Bordeaux. So, let me hand over the microphone to you and let you run with it, because I think 2015 sounds like you're a bit excited about it. Yeah, 2015 looks like a very exciting vintage. Um, just a quick primer on what En Primeur is. It, it's um, the spring following the most recent harvest is when the Bordeaux Chateaus release their wines to the trade. Those are the people who are going to buy the wine and eventually distribute them and, and then sell them at retail for customers. So this is the first chance that we get to taste them as professionals. The wines are unfinished, though, because we're only about six months past the harvest. They won't be bottled for another uh, year. And so they're at a very early stage. They're literally in the barrel. And what we're tasting are unfinished wines. And uh, so it's, a, it's different than sitting down to wines that are finished and in bottle. This is something where you're, you're projecting where the wine is going to be. Um, it's a bit of a, a prediction game, but predictions here are fairly accurate because you taste these wines every time they're in barrel. Uh, so you have that experience. Um, we've tasted the wines when they're in bottle. We've tasted the wines when they're old. And having all of that context, plus knowing how the estates operate, knowing the the various characteristics of the wine, uh, the wines which are bigger, the wines which are not so big, the wines which are fresher, the wines which are oakier. All of these factors help you figure out where the wine is going to be. And then we report on that in the magazine and on our website. And that's for readers to make their buying decisions because the wines will be available for sale uh, later this summer. Take, take us through a typical day of your of a, ta a tasting day because you know Bordeaux, uh, as we know, is is huge. I mean, you have the left bank and the right bank. Do you have to parcel out you know your time, like in terms of allocating certain days to certain areas, or like take us through a day of Poyac? Well, that's a, that's an easy day because uh, I mean I do it by appellation. And I try to obviously keep logistics easy because I'm driving around and it is a huge region. Um, but what I do during my entrepreneur trip is I'm there for almost two weeks. Uh, and the first eight 
days or so I spend doing visits at the chateaus. So let's say I'm in Poyac for one day, I'll visit anywhere from three to five chateaus. Could spend an hour or two at each chateau, not only just tasting the wine, but talking about what they did during the season, what the weather was like, what was difficult, what was easy, which grapes did well, which grapes didn't. And then when you have those reports and that, that information from individual chateaus, you start to put the, the bigger picture together on how the vintage is, not only in Poyac, but then obviously you move around to other appellations. The second part of the trip is where I actually sit down and do formal tasting because we always taste blind at Wine Spectator. Uh, the visits that I do at the chateaus are for my information, but I do not review the wines based on those tastings. So later on, I get the samples sent to me. I taste them at a neutral location. The samples are handled by Wine Spectator staff, and they're served to me blind, which means that I don't know who made the wine or potentially uh, how much it costs. Um, and obviously, knowing certain Bordeaux chateaus, you know which ones are very expensive and which ones aren't. So you take that information out of the equation. You're giving everyone a fair chance, and you're reviewing the wine blind. And that way, we feel we're being being as as objective as possible. Well, that's a huge distinction to make because um, having just come off of the, I got to participate in the Grand Jour de Bourgogne this year, uh, which was just last week. And, you know, there were 2,000 of us being shuffled through tastings throughout the day. And you, you oh, even though everyone has the same size stand, you always know who the superstars are because, you know, people are thronged around them. So doing uh, blind tasting keeps everything, uh, keeps a level playing field. You know, you were just explaining to me a little bit about the economics, the wine economics of Emprimeur. As you were explaining to me, I realized that it is such a boost to an agricultural industry. Can you take, can you walk us through those those points, those highlights that you made? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, what happens is the chateaus are releasing their wines to the trade. The trade are negociants. These are the large companies that buy the wine and then eventually distribute it once they've received it in bottle. Essentially, what the chateau is doing is it's selling its crop um, or its product before it's finished, and they're getting cash on the barrel, literally, in, in many respects, for that product. And then they get the cash flow to operate and do what they need to do, which is on the production side. The negociant takes the wines and then works on them mostly the marketing and the distribution of the wines and gets them into the marketplace, gets them to the importers who then get them to the retailers who then get them to the consumers. All along that chain, people take their markup, of course. So the chateaus are you know, getting paid, they're getting solvent, they're getting uh, financial wherewithal to continue working, and then everybody else benefits along the way. If the system is efficient and it works well, the Empimer price is the very first price that the chateaus give, so it's the lowest price. So even though the consumer is paying markups from importers and distributors and retailers, it's still the lowest price that they're going to get. When you add up all of what's being moved around in Bordeaux during Grand Primeur, it's hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's a massive boost, and it's really one of the biggest engines of the wine industry in general. That's obviously a fascinating point. Um, is there anything else? You know, I, I was following along on your daily blog entries, but when are we going to see your big write-up for this crop, you know, or this vintage in wine spec? Well, the, the web coverage is blogs. There's some scores that are posted on the website now. Not everything, but a, a large selection of the top scores and other things. And then the June 30 issue will be the issue that features uh, the 2015 vintage. There'll be a report on the barrels, and there'll be a lot of other coverage on Bordeaux in general in that 
that issue, including a lot of what is new in the city itself, the new Cité du Vin, and many of the changes that have happened in Bordeaux over the last 10 or 15 years, and made not only the wine region as great as it is today, but it made the town as much fun as it is to visit. I'm glad you mentioned that. Just Can you just say one or two things? I, I'm sure you didn't have much time to do a lot of tourism things, but did you come across anything, like what something that sticks in your mind in terms of if someone's planning a, a wine jaunt to Bordeaux? Well, Bordeaux had a reputation for being a little closed off historically, and over the last 20 years or so, the, the enotourism has really started to pick up, and especially in the last 10 years, uh, more chateaus have opened their doors. They have tasting rooms that are open to the public. There's hotels now in the vineyard areas. Um, there, there's the hotel owned by smith Hot Lafitte. There's a hotel owned by Lynchbage. There's a hotel owned by uh, Chateau Pavie in Saint-Emilion. So the, there's now the infrastructure in place. And then on top of that, of course, uh, now the restaurant scene in Bordeaux itself has really picked up. And as that's gotten better, it's not just classic French dining. It's actually a very strong locavore movement. Uh, a lot of farm-to-table styled restaurants, small wine bars, and really going for the, the wine lifestyle that is probably typified by you know the Mandavi approach to getting people into Napa and and I don't think Bordeaux is going to be Napa eyes but it's definitely a, a fun place to visit and you can go there now really just to do a wine trip. James thank you so much for taking uh, you know a few moments out of your I know just super packed packed schedule to, to talk to he, us here at Paris Good Food and Wine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Myself, Paige Donner, and the rest of the team look forward to seeing you again here for the next episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine. Because it's oh, so good. Ah, voila. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.